Good morning and welcome to Laurel Heights. We do have visitors present. We always welcome you and hope that our friendship toward you, in addition to the fundamental reason that you come here, will bring you back to us from time to time. The thought has occurred to me often, usually during our song services, that many of our cherished and well-known hymns have the same theme, the death of Christ. And that is so good for us. At the cross, beneath the cross of Jesus, nailed to the cross, the old rugged cross, the way of the cross leads home. When I survey the wondrous cross, that is so good for us. It reflects what we believe that the death of Christ is the basis of our present relationship with God and the hope of our eventual entrance into heaven. Because he suffered and died, we can respond to him, we can be forgiven, we can be God's people, and we can go to heaven, which is the home of the faithful. No wonder we sing over and over again about the death of Christ. We should preach about it on a regular basis. The truth of what he did for us is central to our faith, central to our mission, and should be kept before us. Do we realize the death of Christ is the most tragic event in the history of the human race? Yet the most wonderful thing that ever happened for our good. It was the saddest spectacle man ever beheld or could ever read about. Yet out of that death came the potential for man's greatest joy. It can be said it was Satan's greatest victory, but at the same time it was Satan's greatest defeat. It might be argued it was the darkest hour in the history of the world, yet it was the greatest light of hope for us. And from the day of Pentecost until now, brothers and sisters in Christ have gathered together like this on Sundays, sometimes in homes or at a church building or out in the clearing in a jungle or in someone's home, or a rented storefront, or by a river, to remember the death of Christ. This morning there are three things I want to say about the death of Christ, and all three points contain a strong element of irony. His death was an expression of man's hatred, but God's love. First, let me talk about man's hatred. If you ever need an example or an illustration of human malice and hatred or abhorrence, 
What happened to Jesus in his suffering and his death illustrates the worst in human hatred. And this is not a matter of suspecting that hate might have played some role in the motive. This is not one of those cases where you have information that eventually leads to a conclusion. We are specifically told that those who took him to the cross hated him. Jesus tells us in John 7 verse 7, The world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. He said in John 15 verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And in John 15 24, Jesus said, They have seen and also hated both me and my Father. Now this hatred men had against Jesus was not passive or dormant. They sought to kill him. Matthew 26 and verse 4 says they plotted how they might take him by force and kill him. This was their plan. When Jesus did not obey the Pharisees' human tradition in regard to the Sabbath, they sought to kill him. According to John 5, 16 through 18, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him. This is hatred that is so deep and intense. They sought, they planned, it was their purpose to kill this pure and innocent man who was deity in the flesh. Consider for a moment, think about what these men used in their campaign. The tools of their deceit and hatred. False testimony, Matthew 26, 59. <clears throat> Violence and insults, Matthew 26, 66 and 67. Plots and conspiracies, Matthew 27, 4 and John eleven fifty three Trickery in Mark chapter 14 and verse 1. All of this hatred and this violence was packaged into the tactics. Yet they had no case, no cause, no evidence. Over in the book of Acts, in Acts 13 and verse 28, it says, They found no cause for death in him. So the death of Christ stands out in the history of men as a singular expression of man's hatred. Man's hatred toward he who was and is good and pure and right and the only solution to human problems. They hated him, and Acts 2.23 says that lawless men murdered him. But while his death was an expression of human hatred, without comparison in history, his death also stands out 
as the greatest expression of God's love for man. What a message. What a paradox or irony that is loaded with meaning. The same event that expressed man's hatred expressed God's love. And Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 8. With these words given to Paul by the Holy Spirit. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 through 8. And Paul is making an argument here from the ordinary to the extraordinary. Paul is reasoning from what humans might do in a moment of circumstance where courage is immediately required to what Christ did because of his life of purity and courage, not just in a single circumstance or not just for one man. See, rarely we may hear of a man dying for another good man or a good cause. Paul is saying the ordinary is capped by the extraordinary. Jesus didn't just die for someone. In a moment of impulse, he died for all, went to the cross with that purpose, the innocent for the guilty. Jesus gave his life for sinners. He died for the ungodly. And beyond this extraordinary singular death, there is the commitment of Jesus to his Father, the unselfish humility of Jesus, and behind it all, the love of God for man. The cross expressed man's hatred, but it also expressed God's love. It was because of human weakness, but it displayed divine strength. Consider first this part of the irony, human weakness. Would you consider the history of the human race before the cross? Think back over the whole course of man's existence from the beginning until Jesus came and died. What was happening in human conduct? Jewish conduct, Gentile conduct, over and over through the course of that history. I mean, what did people usually do when they were confronted with the challenge and the invitation to respond to God and build a relationship with God and maintain it through the activity of faith and obedience? Well, I don't think any of you have to wonder about the answer. When you start with Adam and Eve and you trace the history of man's response to God all the way up to the day of Christ's death, the verdict is, as Paul stated in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and do fall short of the glory of God. And then when you go from the cross until now you have the same verdict. 
So when Jesus came, he was born into a world where sin and the weakness of sin was everywhere in the human race. Oh, there were some people who were making a valiant effort in pursuit of God. Jesus' parents, John the Baptist's parents, Simeon, others. But the world was ruled by sin. The rulers, the religious institutions, the common people, people from every economic class, sin. And this is why John said in John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Sin and its weakness prevailed. The problem Jesus came to deal with was everywhere in the world he came to. Human weakness in the form of sin prevailed and ruled and manifested itself in many kinds of misbehavior. We read in Romans 5 verse 6, we read a moment ago, when we were still without strength. That's sin. Without strength, weakness, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So Christ died on the cross for sin. Hence, his death was because of human weakness in the form of sin. Yet, his death displayed divine strength. God's power was manifested by Jesus as he walked to his own death, bearing his own cross. What an illustration of strength in Jesus. To endure the torture and ridicule, to submit his body to the pain and his heart to the emotions of that cruel death and to go through that knowing he was innocent. That's strength, divine strength displayed on the cross. No wonder it says of Jesus as a boy that the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The angels of heaven praise Jesus with these words in Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The death of Christ happened because of the weakness of human sin. But in that death, we are able to observe strength and honor and glory. Irony number three. It was the taking of one life in order to offer life to all. In order to understand the biblical concept of atonement, I believe you need to begin with this fundamental. God is holy. And this is well stated by the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 1 and verse 3, where he said this about God, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, you cannot tolerate wrong. 
That is a simple but vital truth about God that we need to know in order to understand the concept of atonement in the cross. God is absolutely pure. He is perfect, sinless, holy, and therefore sin cannot just be ignored or disregarded, dismissed or swept away in some motion of trivia. And this is set forth in a very clear manner in Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. God is holy, so he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. Now, factor into this the concept made vivid in the Old Testament under the law of Moses where Jews brought animal sacrifices. And there we discover a system of sacrifices punctuated by the annual Israelite observance of the Day of Atonement, which specifically focused on the problem of sin and a temporary solution until Christ came. It was God's justice postponed until the fullness of the time. You come to the New Testament then and God sent his son to be the chosen lamb, the perfect sin offering which accomplished at least three basic things. One, he provided a ransom or redemption price paying the debt that man could not pay. Two, he became the victim who suffered but wasn't guilty of any sin. And third, he willingly and lovingly died in such a cruel and heartrending fashion that the event and the person becomes a motivation for the tender heart to turn to God and love him in return. So God is holy. Sin cannot be ignored. The Bible teaches this divine plan of sacrifice and satisfaction and Jesus was that chosen lamb. The sacrifice to end all previous sacrifices. His life was given. He died for us. Here is a passage well suited to our attention when we think about the death of Christ and when we partake of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What a powerful sentence the Holy Spirit gave us. One simple verse that says what we believe and what we act upon when we obey the gospel and what we live by. Would you listen again? Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered for sins. Not his, he had none. He suffered and died for our sins. And this is what Paul affirms in another very clear statement written by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15.3. He died for our sins. Now, it is important to observe this phrase, the just for the unjust, I read in 1 Peter 3.18. Here is this idea of God's justice satisfied by the innocent. The just, perfect Jesus died for the unjust, for us. And why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. When we respond to the good news, when our faith moves us to act and obey him in repentance and baptism, we are raised from the death of sin to spiritual life with God. Paul wrote to people who had obeyed the gospel and this is what he said in Ephesians 2 in verse 1. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Similar to that in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. He gave his life that we might have life, spiritual life with God now, and life eternal after death. Heaven is the home for the faithful. The death of Christ, packed with irony, an expression of man's hatred, but God's love. It was because of human weakness in the form of sin, but his death displayed the almighty strength of God. It was the taking of one life in order to offer life to all men. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.10, He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, what are the practical implications of this for us today? We should keep his death central in our study our Bible reading, our thinking, our worship, the Lord's Supper, and every single day of the week in how we live. We should love Him who loved us. Live our lives for Him who died for us. Obey Him who has all authority. Be alert to sin and error. And know that what the world has to offer loses its appeal altogether every time you stop and read about and think about the death of Christ on the cross for us.
the wonderful story of the gospel. It's what people need to hear. Here's how we sometimes summarize these basic truths. Recognize that God is above all. That the Bible is His Word. Christ is the Son of God. Sin is man's problem, but we can be redeemed by the blood. My initial response ought to be, hearing this message, I believe it with all my heart, turned from my sin, confessing my faith, I am baptized into Jesus Christ to arise to walk in newness of life, and then my commitment, this is the pathway forward, and then my commitment to live faithfully the rest of my life. If you haven't taken these steps, why not? If you've taken these steps but you've fallen away from the value of Christ's death for us, we invite you to come while we stand together to sing.